This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au God, we want to thank you for your grace to us, as Katie's reminded us this morning, the grace that you lavish upon us, not only in the gospel, but, but in the everyday stuff of this life, for our jobs, for the wonderful material blessings that you give us. And we want to thank you for the grace that you've given this church community, the generosity that you have provided from amongst your people. We thank you for this budget surplus, this this uh, last month, and we pray that you'd help us to finish strong this year, to continue to be generous and joyful and sacrificial in our giving. But I just want to thank you for your people here as they partner financially together to see uh, a work of the gospel here, to see the name of Jesus made famous. And God, we pray now as we look at Acts chapter 19, as we see the good news of Jesus radically transforming a city, we pray that you would stir in us a deep sense of gospel confidence of confidence in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God, would you make us a church that is expectant about what you can do, about what you are doing, about what you have done in the past. We pray that you would speak to us now by your word, through your spirit, and transform us. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. You know, here at Anchor, we have... um, We've got a big vision. We like to dream big. Um, We like to set big goals for us. But sometimes as you think about what we say from the platform, maybe this question lurks in the back of your mind. Is this vision just a little too big? I mean, Matt, are you just naive? I mean, sure, like it's all all good, well and good to, to cast these big dreams, a vision of people coming to faith in Jesus, of gospel communities being scattered across the city in the inner west, of churches planting churches, of a city being radically transformed by the gospel. Surely that's naive. Maybe we just need to turn it down a little bit, bring our vision down a bit. Maybe, maybe cast a more realistic vision that we might be able to achieve. Am I overly optimistic? Is revival ever possible in our city, in our time. Well, what I wanna do today is walk through Acts chapter 19 and give you a case study of where God has worked as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed abundantly to radically transform an entire city and region. Radically transform it. But there's a, a little caveat I need to offer in this, that it's, um, it's dangerous to take Acts as a case study and say, well, what we see happening here in Acts chapter 19, therefore, because it happened there, must happen now in our time in our city. This is one example of how God worked in one city and not necessarily the way God works in every city. But it is an example of how God has worked and often does work in history as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed and as cities, entire cities are radically transformed by the gospel. And so my hope this morning is that God would stir in us a deep confidence in his transforming power in the good news of the gospel of grace. The city that gets transformed this morning is the city of Ephesus. It's a large city. It's the fourth largest city in the first century, a population of around a quarter of a million people. It's a very important city. Um, It's a city that hosted the grandiose theater, a seating capacity of 24,000 people. 
That's a large theater, even by today's standards. This theater seats around 1,800 people, I think, is the capacity. And as the team bumped in this morning, as you can see, all the seats were there. Seemed like there was a packed house here last night. But they had this gigantic theater called the Grandiose Theater in the city of Ephesus that was huge and it hosted sporting events and arts events. And the center of this city was the Temple of Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It doesn't stand any longer today, but there is a one single pillar that is left that stands that marks this, the place where this great temple once stood. The, um, the, the, the goddess Artemis was depicted by a multi-breasted statue. She was the goddess of fertility and she was worshiped and venerated in this city. Ephesus is a deeply religious city, and in fact, so religious that their religiosity had an impact on its economy. What happened in the city of Ephesus was that travelers and pilgrims would come, it was a very central location, at the beginning of the economic um, gateway to the rest of the Roman Empire along the Roman road. Travelers, businessmen, um, pilgrims, religious pilgrims would all come to the city of Ephesus and they would purchase a little statue, a little shrine, potentially made of stone or silver or wood. And they would take this shrine to the temple, they would have it blessed and they would take that statue or shrine home and they would add it to the goddess of Artemis, the goddess of fertility would bless their family, would bless their uh, make their family large with lots of children. And so this city had religious significance um, and importance, wealthy, commercially significant city, and this city is radically transformed by the good news of Jesus. And what I want to look at this morning are the three factors that led to this transformation. And the three factors are these bold and abundant preaching of the good news. Now, we've looked at bold preaching a lot in this, in this series as we've looked at Acts, so I'm not gonna deal necessarily with the, the bold preaching. I'm not necessarily gonna deal with the reason, persuasion, like we've looked at the last couple of weeks. The aspect of this speaking of the good news I wanna focus on this morning is that it is abundant. It is abundant speaking and teaching of the word of God. So that's the first factor. The second is God shows up. And the third factor is that the church has a deepening repentance, a personal awakening within the people of God to the good news of the gospel. So those are the three factors that lead to this citywide transformation of the gospel. So let's have a look at the first one, abundant sowing of the good news. Have a look at verse eight of chapter nine, 19. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two whole years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This citywide transformation of the gospel has happened as a result of abundant speaking, abundant sowing of the good news, abundant teaching of the word of God. Paul's custom, as it was in every city, was to rock up to the city and head straight to the synagogue, to the Jewish believers, to the God-fearing Greeks, and to teach the word of God there. And we've seen his strategy was to open the Bible and show them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. 
He did that every day for three months until there was opposition and rejection. He took the disciples and headed somewhere else. After they left the synagogue, they went to the hall of Tyrannus. It was a large lecture hall in the middle of the city. And in the city of Ephesus, they experienced a midday siesta. From 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., the entire city shut down for siesta, including the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And so Paul seized this cultural moment, this opportunity that he had, and hired the hall between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Every day he taught from the Word of God and preached the good news of Jesus. Now, over two years, that's 730 sermons, or that's 3,650 hours worth of teaching. That's a Master's of Divinity and some. You probably graduate your PhD after that, having heard all of that information from Paul. But so efficient and effective is this, that it says there in verse 10, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God. All of them, as the travelers came, as the merchants and businessmen came, as the pilgrims came to purchase their shrines, they all walked past the hall of Tyrannus and heard Paul speaking of the good news. They heard Paul unpacking the word of God and people got saved and they went back to their cities, their homelands, their towns. In fact, it's um, estimated that the churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two and three, the seven churches there, were all planted and established during this two year period as Paul trained up and sent out missionaries and church planters from Ephesus. The whole region, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There is abundant sowing. There is daily speaking of the good news of the gospel. Paul preached lots, five hours a day. You know, it takes me roughly 20 hours to prepare a sermon every week. And here Paul is preaching for five hours every day, no prep time, just day after day after day after day. He is abundantly sowing the good news. Kind of reminds me of that verse from back in Acts chapter 5, 28, where the, uh, the, the, the Sanhedrin accused the apostles of filling the city of Jerusalem with the gospel. And that was the apostolic aim. That was the point. That was their, their primary mission that Jesus had sent them to, to take the good news to the ends of the earth, to fill the cities of the world with the hope and grace and good news of Jesus. That was the aim. I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, you reap what you sow. It's an agricultural image. And if you imagine a farmer who is dependent on his business for his income, he would like to grow as much crop as possible that he can on his patch of land. And so if a farmer was hoping for a, a bumper crop in the season ahead, if he was to sow one seed, it would be illogical of him to assume that he's gonna have a bumper crop. Now the farmer doesn't do that. He plows his land to the very edges and he sows his seed everywhere. In every part of his land, he, he sows abundantly so that he can produce a crop. You reap what you sow. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. And it seems to me that the same principle, does it not, applies to the story here that we see in Acts 19. Paul abundantly sowing, speaking the good news of Jesus. You think about the parable of the, um, the farmer in Mark chapter four. Where does he sow the seed? 
He sows the seed on the path. He sows the seed amongst the shallow soil. He sows the seed on uh, on the rocky soil and he sows the seed on the good soil. He sows the seed everywhere in the hope that wherever that seed lands, it will land in good soil and produce a bumper crop. You know, Lifeway Research, which is a US-based Christian research firm, in 2012 did a bunch of research and found that 80% of Christians believed that they had a personal responsibility to be sharing their faith. 80% of Christians believed they had a personal responsibility. And yet, of that 80%, only 60% had shared their faith with someone in the last six months, and only 50% had invited someone to church in the last six months. So we all feel that we're responsible to share our faith, but by and large, the church isn't doing it. Now imagine for me, with me for a second, imagine turning those stats around. Imagine all 80% of people saying, yep, I've, I've sowed the seed, I've shared the word, I've, I've spoken to someone, I've invited someone to church. Imagine what that would look like. It would look a bit like this. Imagine, I've got some seeds here, and here is one seed, and we take that one seed and we sow it, and we're like, oh Jesus, please, do a work. And we hope and we pray, but but imagine if we did this. Imagine if we took the seed, and I hope there's a vacuum cleaner here, and we sowed the, sorry, front row, you ready? And we sowed the seed a bit over here, good news over there, and some good news over here. I hope that doesn't get in your camera lens, Josh, and some good news over here, and you guys get some good news too. Good news, hashtag good news everywhere. I'm sorry, George, the stage is messy. I'll clean it up. That's the picture that we have here happening in Acts chapter 19. The word is being sowed everywhere, everywhere, every day, every day, in every part of the world, the good news is being sent out and being sown. Imagine if we were able to turn those statistics around. Abundant sowing, abundant sowing of the good news. That is the first thing that is required for a city to experience gospel transformation to experience revival is that the people of God speak the good news lots. Everywhere, every day, in every place, in every workforce, in every cafe, in every bar, in every campus, on every sporting team and in every home. We speak, we gossip the good news. That's the first thing. But they need more than that, don't they? They need more than just lots of people talking about Jesus. Think back to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 2 verse 6, where he's speaking to the church in Corinth and he says, well, I planted, Apollos is the one who watered, but God gave the increase. God is the one who gave the growth. We need more than just lots of people speaking the good news. We need God to work. And that's precisely what happens here. God shows up and he pours his spirit out in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. God is at work here validating the preaching of the good news in this city. As as Paul is laboring and building tents during the, the, the day, he wipes his forehead and throws a handkerchief on the ground and someone picks that up and These are extraordinary miracles. Now that might sound like a funny thing to say. A miracle is extraordinary in and of itself, 
The reason this is, this is extraordinary is because this is rare even for the book of Acts. Like we've seen crazy things happening in Acts, but this is rare. That Paul's not even present, that a cloth that touched him is healing people. But God has shown up in power. People are being healed. And the question is, why does this happen like this in the city of Ephesus? And potentially one of the answers is that this was a city that was steeped in magic, in the occult, and in pagan worship. And so here, God is doing a powerful work to demonstrate something. It's probably why the book of Ephesians that Paul writes to that church is full of references to the principalities, the powers, because this was a city that wrestled with this, the magic, the occult, the the dark arts. Why did things go crazy in this city? Why was Paul's ministry so effective? Why did so many people come to faith here? God did a work. God poured out his spirit. God moved people from death to life. We don't really need miraculous handkerchiefs and towels and aprons, but we do need. We do need the favor of God on our church and on our city. We do need God to pour out his spirit. We do need God to transform lives. And if that's true, as we keep saying, we need to be a church that is desperately pleading with God because he is the only one who can do that. We're called to be faithful in sowing the seed and pleading with God that he would do what only he can do. So that's the second thing. The second thing is that God shows up. God shows up. But he's even at work when these imposters come and they try and manipulate these miracles that are happening. We're told of the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, who come and they start to do exorcisms. They start to try and cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And there is one occasion where they do it and the demon responds to them and says, well, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then he whoops their butts. They flee from that place naked. You know you've lost a fight when you run naked. And so they run naked, these seven sons of Sceva. And this becomes known across the whole city of Ephesus. And there's, God uses this moment where it seems like people are twisting the, the, the ministry, twisting the work of God. God uses even that. He uses even that moment to purify and strengthen his church because this moment is a defining moment for God's people. They see here the difference between magic, the occult, and miracles. You see, these demons did not recognize the magic words, the formula that rolled off the lips of these, these seven sons of Sceva. They recognized the authority, the power of Jesus. There is a clear demonstration here that whilst magic makes the person look good, miracles actually make Jesus look good. God is making a statement here. I am in control. I am powerful. This city needs to be set free from its bondage to the occult, to the magic that they see. And that's exactly what happens. So we see abundant sowing of the word, firstly. We see God show up and work powerfully. And thirdly, we see a deepening repentance amongst the people of God. We see inner transformation happening. Have a look at verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices because of what they had seen. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them inside of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This church had wrestled with what we've been discussing, syncretism. That is, they'd come to faith in Jesus and they loved Jesus and worshiped Jesus, but they kind of took some of their old life and just blended it together with their new faith. And so they hung on to their magic practices until this moment happens where they begin to see the difference and God by His Spirit stirs repentance and transformation in the people of God. And so they come and they throw their magic books and their parchments and their spells and they burn them to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the equivalent today of $6 million worth of magic paraphernalia that gets burnt and destroyed. It's a powerful statement here of the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, of the, the depth of their repentance, that God has been working using this moment to stir a deeper more Christ-like, more holy church. If we wanna see a gospel awakening in our city, it first needs to begin in our own hearts and own lives and own church. God will strip the idols of his people before he strips the idols of the city. And that needs to be true of us. We need to be prepared to let God do an inner work in us we have no hope of our culture seeing the impact and power of the gospel to transform if they can't see it transforming us. It has to transform us first. And that's exactly what God does here in this city. The deepening godliness that this church experiences, this repentance and transformation means. Do you have a look there in verse 20? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. There is this beautiful contrast here we see between these magic books that are being burnt and destroyed and the word of God, which is prevailing and increasing in power and significance and influence because, because the church took seriously what it means to follow Jesus, repented of their sin, repented and turned away from their old ways, and increasingly follow Jesus in all areas of their life. We've seen this, this, this theme of the word of God gaining traction and growing as we've looked through the book of Acts, that the word prevails, that the word continued to grow because the word of God is central to this community of faith. Remember Acts chapter 242, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the body of doctrine called the good news, the gospel. You know, history tells us that when revival often hits a city or a nation, when the, a, a love and affection for the word of God is not nurtured, often the signs of revival disappear as quickly as they came. But not so here. A, a deep affection and submission to the authority of the word of God happens. And it continues to prevail and grow strong and mighty and change this area. So these are the three factors that have led towards gospel transformation of an entire city, abundant sowing of the good news. God shows up and does his thing. And finally, the church has a deepening repentance. The church has its own awakening to the good news of the gospel and how it transforms them from the inside out. But the question is, what is the effect? What effect does this have on 
the city of Ephesus. Have a look at verse 23. This is what happens as the good news transforms a city. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is, the, the Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, bought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has been persuading and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, that is the grandiose theater, 24,000 seating capacity, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out this thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. What a scene, right? Demetrius stirs up the, the, the shrine makers. They rush in. They start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why? The good news, the gospel hit their back pocket. That's why. The transformation that occurred began to have an economic impact on the city. Such was the change that people stopped buying these statues from Demetrius. He's got an overstock of idols in his shop. And I can imagine it's probably difficult to have a sale on an idol. It's like 50% off gods. Buy one God, get one God free. It probably doesn't float. And so he's running out of business. The other craftsmen who fashion these devices are not getting the, the, the supply and demand's not there anymore. And the economy begins to be impacted because Paul's message is convincing people that a God that is made and fashioned by human hands is no God at all. You even notice there he says, we are the ones who are responsible for Artemis' magnificence. That's not a God to be worshipped. A God to be worshipped is a God who is magnificent irrespective of what people do or say. Paul's message is so changing in this city, such was the effect that it throws the city into turmoil. There is a riot that happens. People are chanting. Everyone's in on it. They don't even know what's happening. But that has all, all occurred because the good news has literally turned this city upside down. I long for the day when we would see brothels across this city shut down because men have fallen under the conviction of the Spirit. Long for the day when the porn industry starts to lose revenue and websites close. Long for the day when pokey machines are no longer a source of broken families and addiction and debt. Long for the day when repentance both inside the church and outside of the church has a significant impact on our city. That's our hope. That's our dream. That's our vision as a church. 
And I want to encourage you not to settle for anything less. Why would we? When we've got a God who is capable of transforming entire cities, not just one person, an entire city impacted by the good news of the hope that is found in Jesus alone. You know, God doesn't just do that in Acts chapter 19. He hasn't done this, He has done this multiple times in history. And I want to highlight a few examples for you as we close this morning. The first example of what God has done is the story of the Fullerton Street Revival in New York City. Uh, the revival was sort of birthed by a guy, a pastor by the name of Jeremiah Lanphier. On September 23rd in 1857, due to the, the low numbers of attendance in his church and a crisis of attendance in churches across North America, he started a prayer meeting and six men came 30 minutes late. A few weeks later, 20, 30 people were gathering to pray in the heart of New York City that God would do a work. On the 14th of October, 19, 1857, financial crisis threw North America into chaos. Banks were closing, businesses were shutting down, unemployment skyrocketed, and soon 3,000 people began to gather for prey. Soon 10,000 people were gathering to pray. By April of 1858, it is estimated that there were more than 10,000 gatherers in prayer. And in the, the following three to four years, the Protestant denominations alone added half a million new members. Half a million new members in three to four years because God took the circumstances of a culture, the deepening prayers of a church, their desperation, the preaching of the good news that was being sowed, and he radically transformed not just New York City, but an entire nation, half a million people coming to faith. Or you think of the stories that came out of the Welsh revivals in the early 1900s. 1904, a pastor by the name of Evan Roberts, who had a passion for youth, led a prayer meeting with a vision of seeing 100,000 people come to faith. As they prayed and as they preached the good news, in eight months, eight months, 100,000 people had come to faith in Jesus. There are stories across Wales of radical social transformation that occurred as the good news was spoken. One story is told of the miners who in order to motivate the mules and the, she and the, um, and the, the horses that worked the mines with them would beat them physically and swear at them verbally. And revival broke through the mining community and a bunch of miners got saved and so they no longer swore and all of a sudden they had compassion for God's creatures and they couldn't motivate the mules, the donkeys and the horses to do the work. And so the mining industry was impacted by the good news coming to the city. There's stories of judges closing courtrooms because the crime rate plummeted. They had no work to do. Or I think of the stories that Pastor Tim Chaddock shared with a, a small core team of people here before we launched in the band room at the Roxbury Theatre in Glebe as he told the story of a church in downtown LA that started to pray really specifically for certain demographics of their city for a whole year and then saw multitudes of those people come to faith. New York, Wales, L.A. What about Sydney? 
What about our city? What about 2017? What about our time? Just do you believe right now that God can and wants to save people in this city? Do you believe that he has people in this city who are his, who have not yet come to put their faith in Jesus? Do we believe that? We have to believe that. That is the God we worship, a God who is powerful, a God who can radically transform cities as his people faithfully and abundantly so, as they pursue a pouring out of his spirit in prayer. And as the church deepens its repentance and walk with God. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the Lord can do in a day far more than all our plans, scheming, and organizations can do in decades. That's the God we worship. God who can do abundantly more. God is in the good news. God is in the business of transforming people's lives. Of transforming Cities of lifting up the name of Jesus. And Acts chapter 19 ought to fill us, church, with a deep sense of gospel confidence that this is the God we worship. He is not intimidated by Sydney. He's not intimidating by the declining statistics of church attendance. He's not intimidated by the rise of agnosticism or atheism or alternative worldviews. He holds the nations in the palm of his hand. That is the God we worship. This is the God who changes cities. Ought to fill us with great, great confidence, church, that He could take ordinary people and in the everyday stuff of life, use us to do a powerful and mighty work. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't quite encountered that transforming work of God in your life. You don't know what it looks like to have God come in and redeem your brokenness and set you free from your sin. I believe there are people here this morning who God wants to do a work of transformation in. This transformation is a transformation of death to life. As He takes people who are spiritually dead, far from Him, breathes new life into them. It's a transformation of blindness to sight, of purposelessness to significance and meaning and purpose. And it's all centered around the person of Jesus who died on the cross as a punishment and penalty for our sin, for your sin. Your offense that had broken and shattered the relationship that you had with your creator, Jesus restores. And he wants to do that work in many of you this morning. He wants to do a work of purifying his church. You've been a follower of Jesus for years. God wants to work increasing repentance, Christ-likeness and godliness in you. And he wants to show our city what it looks like for the people of God to surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus, to the authority of the Word of God and the power of the Gospel. He wants to transform us, church. He wants to transform our city. Is our vision too big? It is. We have no hope of achieving citywide transformation apart from God. Apart from God. With God, there is hope. With God, there is the possibility of our city in our time seeing revival. That's our prayer. That's our hope. But here's the deal. We don't truly want revival in our city, in our church. 
until we want to see it happen in the church down the road, in the church next door, in the church that doesn't quite fit our theological tribe. True revival transforms all Christian denominations. We want to see God do a powerful work in our city. And what we need is not a man-sized vision that we're capable of doing ourselves, but a vision that is so beyond us that it drives us to our knees in pleading with God to do what only He can do. You know, that holy discontinuity that we have with seeing a city that is far from God doesn't stop us from celebrating the evidences of His grace that are happening right now in our community. The staff have been so encouraged to hear every week all of the mission moments that get shared in gospel communities. Time and time again, stories of people who are doing what Mike did, being bold in their workplace, talking to their colleagues over lunch, inviting people to church. In fact, there's one person in our group, I hope hope Jez doesn't mind me saying this, Jez has got a story almost every week of an opportunity that he had. Maybe it's a small one, maybe it's a significant one that he takes This big, grand vision doesn't make us discontent with the small things that God is doing. That's where it starts, with sowing the seed, and then sowing it again, and then sowing it again, and then sowing it a little bit more, and pleading with God to do what only He can do. We're going to respond to this God now in worship, and I want this worship to be a moment for us as a church where we say, God, would you please show us what you want to change in me? What transformation do you want to bring in my life? How do you want to purify me? How do you want to change me? How do you want to make me more like Jesus? God, I'm open to that. Would you work by your spirit? Our prayer team is going to be available this morning. You you can identify them with orange lanyards. They're going to be to the right and to the left against the walls in this auditorium. And if you would like prayer for anything, please go and see one of them. If you'd like to experience the transformation that God offers for the first time this morning, then please head there. They would love to pray for you, lead you in a prayer of confession to receive Christ. There's no Lord's Supper this morning, but we're gonna respond now to our good, powerful, city-changing God. And so I'm gonna invite the band up and we're gonna pray. Let's pray together, church. God, we wanna thank you this morning that you're a God who is in the business of transforming lives. We praise you, God, for the work that you have done in the past in radically transforming entire cities. And God, that vision excites us because that's what we wanna see here. That's what we wanna see in our city. And so we plead with you, God, do whatever it takes. Refine your church. Pour out your spirit. Help us to have the courage to sow this good news that our city so desperately needs abundantly and do what only you can do in transforming lives for your glory. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus and God's people said, amen, amen.